Hello, and welcome back to the Sunday Long Read Podcast. My name is Jacob Feldman. Our guest this week is Atusa Araxia Abrahamian. She is an independent reporter who has mixed cogent thoughts on big ideas with on-the-ground investigative reporting to own what has become a fascinating nexus of subjects involving globalism, statehood, immigrants, and the meaning of citizenship. This stuff is in the news now as much as ever. Her work has appeared in just about every outlet of note, from the New York Times to The Guardian, The New Yorker, The London Review of Books, and so on. Atusa grew up a Canadian citizen in Switzerland and spoke Russian, Armenian, English, and French as a child. Hopefully we'll have time to get into what that was like. As she wrote last year, I called the UN my country and New York City my home. Atusa, welcome to the podcast. It's so great to have you today. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so I, th- I think it makes sense to start there with, with your background, if you don't mind, as it seems to inform much of the impactful work you've done. So you grew up in Switzerland with both your parents working at the UN. Were, were these topics of, of statehood and internationalism something you guys discussed at the dinner table? Well, not really. I mean, you know, you're a kid, you're not really talking about globalization uh, in the same way as you (laughs) are when you're in your 20s or 30s. But uh, that was always internationalist um, vision of the world was always the subtext uh, throughout most of my education. And, uh, you know, I have this one very formative memory from, I guess it was pre, I was four years old. And every Christmas, we would do this, you know, show for the parents in my school and all the kids would dress up and wear costumes typically costumes from the country they were from it was Mm -hmm. a pretty international bunch lots (laughs) of kids from un families and the teacher asked me what costume i was gonna wear and i didn't know and and she kept saying what do you want to wear and i just i was four i didn't know anything yeah and at some point the teacher threw up her hands and just put me in this like generic african cloth thing (laughs) And I kind of knew that that wasn't right, you know, but, and so I had a complete meltdown in front of all the parents. <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> and I think that's, uh, you know, I'm still there. I haven't really evolved <laughs> too much. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's an awesome story. So, uh, you come to America for college, right? And, and at that point, did you have intentions of, of writing about these issues or, or, or writing journalism at all? Uh, I wanted to be a music critic. Oh, really? Yeah. I, uh, came, I moved to New York to go to Columbia. And I wanted to be Sasha Frere Jones because I, I also thought that Sasha Frere Jones was a Haitian woman. Um, <laughs> it's not the case. So I was just really lived and breathed uh, music, you know, punk rock. I played in a band. Um, so that was my main motivation when I was 18. Um, I reviewed a ton of music in college, wrote features about bands, and it just got a little repetitive. You know, it didn't really – it stopped being interesting after a point. Mm-hmm. I still love writing about music, but uh, – yeah. Then I, you know, I guess I grew up a little bit and uh, started to think about all of these other things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We uh, highlighted the story you wrote about the French rap group maybe, maybe two years ago now uh, in our newsletter. So you still get get to do that from time to time. Is the is the punk rock online somewhere for, for people to listen to? No, and <laughs> it will never be. <laughs> so when did you when did you shift to, to thinking about global politics? Was it uh, and, and you know, you've written in the New York Times about your personal green card uh, lottery saga. Was that part of uh, the shift into thinking about writing about politics? It was definitely, a f- you know, it informed my views. So in college, I was a philosophy major. I was thinking about these things really abstractly. You know, I took a course on inequality, but it was mostly about ethics and, you know, um, what philosophers had said about this and a little bit of economics, but not a whole lot. And I took classes on 
you know, a few international relations type classes. And um, I, I guess I started thinking about immigration and globalization and kind of where we are today when I ran into problems getting a visa. And I know that's so self-centered, but like when you're, you know, 20, that that's how you kind of encounter things, mm -hmm. I think. Um, but yeah, I finished college and I was interning at Harper's and, you know, my life was here. I had a boyfriend. I had, you know, I thought I was like doing okay professionally because I yeah. was an intern at Harper's, like <laughs> all that stuff. And, uh, I thought there, I thought, okay, well, obviously I'll, I'll stay, right? I'm, I'm Canadian. Of course I can stay. Mm -hmm. And I went to see a lawyer about it once I realized maybe it wasn't going to be so easy. And the guy just kind of laughed in my face and said, well, do you have a boyfriend you can marry? Um, and that's when I realized it was actually really difficult for people yeah. to live where they weren't born. And that just didn't seem to have kept up with anything else in our world. You know, mm. we have the movement of, of, of companies and goods and capital, but people are still pretty much stuck where, where they were assigned to be stuck at birth. And that, it took me a while to formulate, formulate it in that way. But I think that's such an important point. And I'm obviously not the first person to make it, but, that's really when I started thinking about globalization and the uh, the sort of paradoxes of it. And that conversation has evolved a lot politically, you know, in the world. And it's been just really fun to, to follow that and to engage in it, you know, intellectually. You, so you, you, you have that process. You go back to uh, Paris and Russia. Is that right? Um, yeah, well, I tried to briefly to live in Russia because um, I spoke, I grew up speaking Russian. My Russian mm -hmm. is not amazing, <laughs> could be better. And after I had my whole debacle where I couldn't stay in the States, I just thought, okay, I'm just going to move to Russia and, and figure it out. And it just, I didn't last very long um, there. <laughs> uh, so then I went to France and I worked at the OECD, which is an economic organization. Um, and I, I wrote a little bit on the side, but I basically had a desk job writing talking points about the um, financial meltdown, uh, which I didn't really know a whole lot about at that point. <laughs> um, and then I came back for journalism school. This may be a self-evident answer, but why uh, were you so intent on finding a way to live in America? Oh, love. <laughs> <laughs> Boredom with, uh, you know, where I grew up. Uh, I mean, all the reasons that anyone wants to live in New York were the same reasons I had, except I just wasn't born in this country. Mm -hmm. It was less America and more, <laughs> I just, I wanted to be in New York City because that's, it was where I lived my entire adult life. It was a short adult <laughs> life, but you know, that was the choice I made and I, I wanted to be back and I love it here. And, and you were able to come back uh, to, to return to Columbia and study investigative journalism. Why investigative journalism when you know, rather than becoming an essayist or a, an academic on, on some of these issues? Uh, it seemed like the most uh, challenging and maybe useful hmm. um, program. I hadn't, I had done some journalism before. I'd done tons of arts, at writing and music and culture and stuff. And it seemed like maybe I would get a little bit more out of it. And I got a lot out of it. What, what would be some of the takeaways that you feel like you've been able to put into practice for someone who, who hasn't gone through that type of study? A lot of it is just knowing where to look for information um, and how to talk to people in a way that's not, you know, amateurish or too scary. So uh, we, we had uh, one of the, the people who taught the investigative class was this um, private investigator called Jim Mintz. And he was just a fantastic person to learn from because he spent so long, you know, 
interviewing people in an investigative capacity, but not just for journalism, for, for you know, finding fraud and, and recovering assets and whatnot uh, around the world. Um, and it was just a, a great introduction to the mindset more than anything, the mindset mm. of being an investigative journalist. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a big focus on uncovering wrongdoing, uh, which I think is so important, especially now. I will say that sometimes I find that frame a little bit limiting um, because I think... Say more you, about that. You So you said, you know, why didn't you become an academic? And like, the real reason is because I didn't get into the PhD program I wanted. <laughs> and, and then uh-huh. And then after that, academia and journalism seemed like equally bad professions to go into and so i figured i wouldn't spend seven years trying to you know look at a job in some rural place that i didn't want to live um but i think i do i'm like very intellectually motivated and i love Mm -hmm. big ideas and moral complexity and uh, sometimes you know busting the bad guys doesn't really scratch that like Mm -hmm. doesn't really feel satisfying um in that way but to go back to the the program at columbia it was it was fantastic there were some great people in it and um the other thing that we did a lot of was teamwork um collaborations which i enjoyed too yeah so after that you you spent some time reporting and also some time in in the editor's chair is that was that also did you also find that not not satisfying uh in the way you were hoping for uh no well i was working at reuters for a few years and i learned a lot and that obviously did not satisfy my like more <laughs> literary aspirations. Yeah, I like, and so yeah. I was editing a magazine called The New Inquiry pretty much the entire time I was at Reuters. Hmm. And it's like a weird combo of things because you're like <laughs> covering the stock market. And then at night you're in a room with your friends and you're like, capital is terrible. You know, it's just a very like you get a bit of whiplash. Um, but I really like doing both. And I found that... Uh, that these were things that were different. The work I was doing at Reuters and the work I was doing on the side was so different that um, it didn't feel like there was a conflict. I did. It was kind of hard, though. I will say there was a couple of years during Occupy Wall Street where I was so torn because everybody I was around was like in the streets and protesting. And I was like, oh, I'm a, Ro- I'm a Reuters reporter. I can't yeah. even say I can't say anything. I can't go to protests because that would be unprofessional. And so that required a little, you know, I had to take a step back and that's okay. And what and ultimately ended, you know, your time there, was it writing the book that which we'll get to in a second? Was that the, the, the switch? Yeah. So the most wonderful thing about Reuters is that some editors let me uh, pursue some more um, longer investigative stories that I wanted to do. And those ended up becoming the inspiration for my book. One of them was about uh, countries that sell their citizenship. And another was about people who renounce it for tax reasons. Um, and I mean, I just love these stories because they were, okay, they were sort of news stories about this country's doing that and this is the money it costs. And, you know, these people are renouncing their citizenship because of this obscure tax law. Like there was real news and information that, you know, maybe in some ways is like kind of dull, but at the same time, I was like, oh my God, this is so crazy. Like if people are buying passports and renouncing passports and they don't even go to the country where they're buying the passports, what does it all mean? Like, what does this system of countries and nationalities all mean? And uh, now you're seeing this huge backlash to that kind of thinking, but this was in 2012. And I don't know, it just seemed like something really new was happening. And uh, um, 
the 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 piece about the people who buy passports and the countries that sell them uh introduced me to some companies that were the middlemen in this business mm-hmm. uh and i i guess i started reporting on them early on enough that i got a foot in the door and kind of got to know everybody before everyone else was writing about it and so that allowed me to then follow them over the next few years and that turned into my to my book um and it was it was so fun and i really wanted to write a book and uh, then I just, you know, I just thought I should go for it. And so I, I left Reuters and actually I wound up at Al Jazeera. Um, but that was in an editing job that gave me the sort of brain space to do writing and reporting on the side. Yeah, absolutely. And and that book, which which we'll link to, uh, is Cosmopolites, which is about the, these issues of, you know, renouncing and sell, selling citizenship. Like you're talking about when you first uh, are writing the stories for Reuters and, and considering turning it into a book, how do you take what what is so personally fascinating to you and try to convince other people that this is newsworthy and a, a trend that is going to be impactful on the world level? That's a great question. I don't know that I, I don't, wouldn't say that I did. I mean, I convinced one editor that it was a good <laughs> idea and like, that's kind of all it takes or like uh-huh. you convince two or three people and it's all it takes. Um, and in Subway, I do think I was a little early to that. Like if I was reporting that book now, I think it would be a different, different ballgame altogether. Uh, but it's like, you know, it, that's okay, too. Um, I guess, how did I convince? I don't know. I was just really into it. And on some level, I didn't even care if other people were interested in it, because I was. And I just it just so happened that, that other people were. But this was not part of the conversation back then. I remember my editor at Reuters being like, oh, that's wacky. <laughs> and And now it would be like, oh, yeah, of course, like... Paul Manafort's associate has six passports, like, of course, but, right. you know, five years ago, or, or was it five years, like seven years ago, it was a very different, <laughs> different world. Yeah. And p- as part of that uh, book writing process, you got to take the trip uh, to the Comoros Island, the small island nation off uh, in between Africa and, and, and Madagascar. What did you get on, on the ground there that you, know, you couldn't have learned from elsewhere? And, and what was just that reporting trip like for you? Oh, my God, it was amazing. It was like the best six months of my life. Um <laughs> I didn't only go there. I, just, I went to a million different places um, back to back, you know, living out of a tiny suit, carry-on suitcase for a couple of months. Uh, the Comoros was definitely the kind of culmination of all of the work that I'd done. Um, it's a very remote country. The infrastructure is really crummy. A lot of people don't have internet. You know, it, it's just hard to get in touch with people there. Um Ordinary people, especially, uh, you know, government people can have a little bit more sort of connectivity. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't, I had everything I had known about the Kororos until that point came from reading like every issue of their local newspapers, um, in French, uh, which I speak. So that, that worked yeah, out. Yeah, it worked. Interviewing a couple of diplomats. And then there was some stuff on WikiLeaks that was fun. And so before I went there, I had this, I don't even know what I expected, but I had this, uh, I knew what I wanted to find. And I hired a wonderful local guy. Um, he was an English teacher. And uh, I found him. Oh, God. Actually, do you want to hear the story of how I found this dude? Absolutely. It's actually a great story. So I didn't, I, you know, I've never, I was traveling alone. I'm 28. I don't, like, maybe I should have someone. To like a go-to person just in case, like a, fi- a fixer, basically, mm-hmm. um, even though I was doing the interviews myself. And I asked a diplomat who'd spent time there if he had any recommendations. And he said, yeah, I know this guy. He uh, he lives in Philly. 
Uh, and here's his resume. I have his resume. You can take a look. Oh. <laughs> look at this guy's resume. And he, he's done a little consulting and he's had a shop and it's pretty ordinary stuff. And at the bottom, it's like head of the National Guard. I'm like, what the hell? Um, and so I call him and I go to Philly and we're going to chat. And he can't actually be my fixer because he was going to be here with his family. But mm -hmm. he recommended this other guy. But the guy I went to meet in Philly, I, you know, we talked a bit and I said, well, what's up with that last line on your right. resume? He was like, oh, yeah, I scaled the walls of the palace and like helped with a coup d'etat. I was behind it. And the Comoros is a place that have that had like 20 coups yeah. uh, during a period of time. And so he was behind one of them. And this is the kind of stuff you hear about a lot there because it's a small country. Everyone's very, you know, chatty and proud of their history and things have calmed down a lot. But that was that was just a taste of what was to come. It was a really, really fun trip. What do you feel like that island and, and the position they were in with, with selling the citizenship, what what did that say kind of about uh, where things stood internationally? You, you mentioned all these coups in the small island, and then you have this businessman pitching globalization as almost a new kind of coup as a way to take over. Yeah, so the, the Comoros, I wouldn't say that the concept of like, they, they have always been pretty... Um, it's an island. It was a, a sort of a strategic shipping route. And so it's actually quite di diverse. Like it's it's not like, you know, sh Hong Kong or New York City, but there's definitely an awareness of the rest of the world that's very strong, um, mm. if only by necessity, because when you're in an island, you have to be engaged with other countries. You have to trade. You have to, you know, there's a lot of comings and goings. So globalization, quote unquote, wasn't new to the Comoros, but um, since the French had um, pulled out, country had been struggling. Um, there's, you know, not great leadership. Uh, they didn't really have the resources to, to build good institutions. And so that made them pretty vulnerable to um, exploitation from the outside. Uh, that was in the form of mercenaries for a long time who were, you know, backed, tacitly backed by the French. Um, so mercenaries, sort of military mercenaries were there for a long time. And then what I discovered is that as the mercenaries left, there was a kind of financial mercenaries were, were coming in and sort of taking advantage. What I've learned or what I kind of my analysis of small countries and globalization is that one of the things that they have to offer the rest of the world is their sovereignty. The fact that they are an independent country who can write their own rules, who can, you know, let people in, kick people out have a vote at the UN, even if it doesn't count for much, you know, sovereignty is, is is still a very valuable and finite resource. And everybody wants some, especially if you're powerful. So what happened in the Comoros is that um, this uh, Kuwaiti, this Syrian French businessman who lived in Kuwait had been to the Comoros a bunch. His name is Bashar Kiwan. And, uh, you know, on his telling fell in love with the place. And I think genuinely did want to contribute to its economic development, as as well as, you know, I'm sure it was also going to help him, um, his finances, his businesses, and his, uh, you know, sense of who he was in the world. Because it's a, when you go to a small country, you feel more important. You know, it's small, you're a big fish in a small pond. And so he brokered this agreement uh, between the Comoro Islands and the United Arab Emirates, wherein the Comoros would sell the, the UAE what is now you know, what has now been revealed to be uh, close to 50,000 citizenships 
uh, to people who have no citizenship in the UAE, who are stateless, who are deprived of a nationality by the state, but whom the state still wants to document for for security reasons or for you know to look <laughs> to look good in yeah. front of the UN. Um, and without yeah, right, without actually giving them full status. Exactly, exactly. And until that, until I discovered that, um, I was a little bit hesitant. Because I didn't want to write a book just about, you know, rich people buying passports. <laughs> mm-hmm. But this added a whole dimension in my mind to, to the importance of the story because it shows that the things that rich people do, even if it's like as silly as, oh, I, I want an extra passport, really um, has an effect on the poorest people in the world. And we're all linked through these markets and these networks and these norms and ideas of what's acceptable. So it, it not to use a hackney term, but like it trickled down. <laughs> Uh, uh-huh. Not in a good way. Yeah. You, you mentioned two sides of the coin in terms of the rich global elite and then the global poor uh, on, on the back end. Have those two, the impact of these issues on those two groups always been front of mind? Did you kind of come to this looking at it one way and, and found the other? Um, I think that there ever, ever since, you know, world, world trade um, began, which is a very long time, Mm -hmm. uh, the fates of the rich and the poor and the, you know, rich countries and poor countries have been linked. Um, I was kind of muddling through what that meant. And then I read a book a few weeks ago by Bruce Robbins called The Beneficiary. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a really great book. He's an English professor at, at Columbia. And it talks about this relationship between the people who benefit from inequality and the people who don't. Uh, and it's, and, you know, he shows in his work that this has preoccupied writers for a very long time. Um, or well thought about it a lot. Um, you know, it, it goes way back. For you personally, how do you, w- when you're writing this mix of big ideas that have been going back decades with these small scale island stories or, or this personal, you know, rich benefactor, or whatever it may be, when you're mixing big ideas with, with tangible investigative work, is there a model for that? Or how do you how do you go about figuring out how that works? Uh, you know, on a day to day writing basis? Oh, man, I think, I think connecting the big ideas to the small stuff or to the more tangible new stuff is the hardest part of what I love to do. It's, hmm. It's really, you know, most journalists or most good journalists, uh, they don't think about uh, topics. They think about stories. And I, uh, you know, regrettably, my mind doesn't really work that way. Um, and so I, it's hard. You know, I don't think that I'm naturally like a storyteller, uh, which is a word I hate. Interesting. Describe. Really? I hate that, That's I hate like it the in vogue ju- term all over journalism. Oh, my God. I hate it. It's just like a deep. It, oh, yeah, it's so... Uh, smart me and and it doesn't give journalists enough credit for what they do like this isn't story time guys like this is serious stuff um and i think it makes it sound too much like entertainment and sometimes hmm. it is but i don't i don't like that term um yeah. but maybe i'm just salty because i'm really bad at it <laughs> so it's hard so that's really hard and it you can think yourself into a corner um, and to get to connect the dots, you just have to get out there and do as much reporting as you can and talk to as many people as you can. And um, sometimes it doesn't lead most of the time. It doesn't lead anywhere. And it's super frustrating. And I don't know what to do about that. 
I think that's a problem we all we all deal with. I want to ask about your career post-book. You've largely been an independent journalist since then, uh, or, or almost the, the whole time, yeah? Well, Al Jazeera shut down a few months after, so um, yes, I was thrown into the into the world. I'm not going to lie, it's really hard, um, mm-hmm. and I think there is such thing as too much freedom. Um, <laughs> what do you mean by that? Uh, if you can, because, okay, I have like a beat, or a, a, I wouldn't even call it a beat at this point, just like a series of preoccupations and things <laughs> that keep me up at night that I try uh-huh. to address. Yeah. And, you know, whether I'm writing essays or reporting or what have you. Um, but that's not, it's not, like I said, it's not very concrete. And so when you're a freelancer and you're just trying to get a word in edgewise anywhere, it feels like you should be covering everything, hmm. um, which, which is really challenging. And then sometimes you're like, oh, I'm going to do a story about fashion or I'm going to do a story about food and you do it. And for, it's not always like, it's not always satisfying because it doesn't feel like it builds up to something. So, for me, that's the hardest thing about not working on a book and being a freelancer. I think yeah. if I had a, the hardest thing also has been coming up with a second book. I am open to <laughs> ideas. Everybody must email me. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's interesting. So, if you had your choice, you would be writing about globalism and, and the movement of money and people full time. There wouldn't be articles about noise canceling headphones, which I think are excellent articles. And and, and we'll, we'll link to that one in particular because that one jumped out to me and I really enjoyed that because I had not thought about silence uh, that way until that essay. But uh, if you, if you had your choice, you would you'd be focusing on on what your book and and the majority of your reporting has been about. I think so, and and I would like to you know stop writing only about like passports, um. <laughs> but yeah, this this what 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 globalization is doing and has done, and what kind of globalization should we want? You know, there's lots of different versions of it, and we have a particular version that at this moment is is pissing off a lot of people, but yeah. it doesn't have to be that way mm-hmm. um, so what role or institution uh would allow you to do that <laughs> craft your, your ideal <laughs> position here i don't know <laughs> i don't know <laughs> i really don't that's part of the problem i think it's also right now the news cycle is so crazy and so trump focused that mm-hmm. there i don't think there's a lot of room for people like me who don't really do breaking news um and who don't really write about trump and kind of yeah it it feels like there isn't always a place Mm -hmm. yeah is that an intentional choice not to try to write about the politics of the day no no i don't i have nothing against it um it's just it's really it's it's more a practical matter it's incredibly competitive you have people on staff you know with way more resources doing it and way more expertise and so it's it's really it's you don't really. I don't. I don't really feel like I have uh, all that to, all that much to contribute in terms of day to day. Interesting. Uh-huh. So, for the people that you haven't scared away from a freelancing career, you, you've developed you know relationships with all these publications. So, do you have any strategies or tips you could offer to to, to yourself a year and a half in the past? Oh, to a freelancer. Um, oh. Well, some people love working on totally different things every other day, and if you're one of those people, you're probably going to have a good time freelancing because it Mm. does afford you a lot of um, breadth. Uh, I think, I think it helps to have a project that you're, you know, that you can sort of keep your eye on, on that project or that prize or that goal so that if you are doing menial work or, or stuff that you're not super thrilled about on the side, you can, it feels worth it. Um, 
and uh you know keep living i don't know <laughs> like be good with money learn yeah. about money um i don't know what else i read a lot and interesting yeah what what is your how, how do you choose what to read how do you find you know new new books or, or uh things that could turn into stories or, or not um, again, I don't know if this is the best approach, but I read a great deal about global inequality. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it's a lot, it's a lot of it's like economics and political. Yeah, we're talking theory. like journals and, and that kind of um, thing. That, well, that's something that I never thought would be as important as it is. I kind of went to Reuters kicking and screaming because I didn't want to be a finance reporter and I didn't, yeah. you know, but, and but, now it here was, you are. but it was so like, and I didn't realize it at the time. And this is such a cliche, but I'm so glad that I did write about the stock market for three months and, you know, do that because now you have a bit more of a facility with the language and it's, hmm. it's not intimidating. And so now basically half of my reading is about economics, um, like on a bigger, not like about stock tips, but, yeah. um, and it's, it's fascinating. Economic <laughs> history is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to talk about a couple of pieces of your work now. We've, we've kind of gone big. We can, we can, we can drill down like you do so well. Um, last year you, you wrote in the New York Times, uh, about the assassination of a Maltese journalist. And the, the headline of that was when the price of reporting is a car bomb. Uh, and, and one line in particular jumped out to me that the assassination of Miss Corona Galizia in a developed European country illustrates how high the stakes are for journalists pushing back against power, particularly for independent reporters without institutional backing. And I don't know how you know self-aware you are when you're, you're writing a sentence like that as a freelance writer in the New York Times. How did how did that uh, the, the killing of that journalist there affect you personally? I was I mean, I didn't I can't even claim to know her that well. I just talked on the phone with her because I was there reporting. I went to Malta a few years ago to report on their um, passport selling uh, scheme, which continues and which she also wrote about. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it was it was really disturbing because I thought Malta was was great and I really enjoyed it. And I just couldn't yeah. you know, imagine some like a car bomb going off in the middle of the place. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I was upset. And not like personally gut- gutted because, like I said, I did not know her. It, that wasn't the kind of relationship I had with her. But it seemed, it seemed like the, it seemed, seemed like that somebody crossed a line. And subsequently, I think a couple of weeks ago, or even last week, um, another reporter who was working on some um, offshore leaks in Slovakia was murdered, and his girlfriend was murdered too. So, I mean, I hope this doesn't become a trend, but it's definitely not a good time to be doing accountability journalism um, in the world. You described before the, the editor saying that this whole passport thing was wacky. And so so the other story that we've highlighted in the newsletter of yours is, is kind of about the wackier side of things. And that's this astrocapitalism in Luxembourg. And uh, I pulled out one um, sentence here. It is reasonable to wonder what exactly a marginal European monarchy egged on by a vivacious gay socialist was doing telling American entrepreneurs on the cutting edge of innovation that their hamlet-sized state could propel humanity and capitalism into deep space. It, it is reasonable to wonder. So how did that story come to you? And what, what was reporting that one like? Um, so I, I became aware of Luxembourg uh, as a country, but also as a concept uh, <laughs> when I was reading a book about tax havens uh, by an economist called Gabrielle Zuckman. It's a really good book. Um, and I reviewed it for Descent a few years ago. And he just really lays into Luxembourg in a way that I'd never really, like, 
he just sounded so angry. And I don't, you don't really get that from a lot of economists. They're very measured. They're like, oh, the data says this. And this guy's just like having a go at them. Um, and then I saw a headline that Luxembourg was investing in asteroid mining. I just, it was just a headline. And I thought, oh, that's really weird. Um, and I read an article about how Luxembourg was going to pass a law that recognized property rights, private property rights in outer space. And so uh -huh. what that means is that if you are Elon Musk or if you, you send a rocket to, to space and you go to an asteroid and you take a bunch of gold that's on an asteroid, because there are asteroids with very um, precious minerals and metals, um, then Luxembourg will recognize the uh, stuff that you get find uh, as your own, uh, which is like one of the fundamental um, – tenets of, of, of capitalism, like someone has to recognize that you own stuff. Uh, and I didn't, I'd never thought of this outside of a planetary context. <laughs> yeah. As, I don't think most people go around thinking like, do I own anything up there? Like what does, so, um, and it's, so I, I had read that book. I had, had this image of Luxembourg as an enabler of so much offshore monkey business. And then, I saw this asteroid thing and I thought, well, if you own stuff in space, it means you can be taxed on stuff in space. And Luxembourg is really, really creative with tax stuff. So I wonder if this, there's something there. Um, and then I just like, it, it was a sort of a normal reporting process where I, I called up Luxembourg and I talked to people who were working on that and, um, followed them around on a trade, trade junket in California. And it took like a year to report. That whole thing took a year because. Um, I had to wait for them to do something. You know, I had to wait for them to have a, a, a junket at all that I could right. follow. Um, so it was a, a slow, a slow burn, but I was really happy with how it turned out. And my editor at The Guardian, David Wolf, uh, deserves a medal for being patient and, uh, so encouraging on that too. Um, so do you just walk around seeing capitalism and everything? Is that just how you, you, I mean, you read it? It is in everything. <laughs> what are you talking about? I mean, no, I'm not like a brain in a vat that like just sees like dollar signs on everything. But um, I do. I think that's really interesting. <laughs> As we're recording this, the New York Times is leading with stories about potential tariffs and, and global trade. We've seen pushback, major pushback against this idea of internationalism or statelessness or open borders or whatever the word is of the day. And over the last year, over the last three years. And you wrote about this in what I think is this your most recent essay in Tank Magazine? Yeah, about yeah. Starbucks. Yeah, exactly. About Starbucks. I was wondering if you could read, uh, you know, a couple sections that jumped out to me that I think perfectly uh, encapsulized where we are right now, sure. if you don't mind. Sure. So um, the story is about uh, Starbucks and Starbucks is a symbol uh, of globalization. Um, at, there was a time in the 90s where Starbucks was enemy number one of the lefty anti-globalization movement. Uh, and it was just a very convenient symbol for that. So the, the conversation about globalization has shifted too. In the nearly two decades since the World Trade Organization demonstrations in Seattle, the loudest protesting voices have switched from those denouncing sweatshops and unfair trade to those calling for secession and disengagement from the rest of the world. The right has hijacked the very notion of anti-globalization to the point where even the neoliberal global monoculture, those who once denounced it, doesn't seem as threatening as the very real ultranationalism that's taking hold. At a time when ill-conceived protectionism, institutionalized racism, and full-on xenophobia are becoming status quo, it feels harder to criticize fair trade coffee for simply not being as fairly traded as it could be. If liberals and conservatives once found a place in the corporate globalist middle, they're now divided along new lines, 
those opposing globalization from the right for ethno-nationalist reasons, and the liberals who just like their globalization to be a little nicer. It's perfect. And we'll have a link to the whole essay if you want it, or if you want to go back over those lines, because there's so much uh, packed into those sentences. I think every story about globalization should have a line that says there was a time in the 90s, like you said, introducing that. Um, but ha- have you feel justified with how, how big of a story these issues of fairness in globalization has, has become personally vindicated that you've, you've you spent all this time traveling around and thinking about these issues and now it's arguably the biggest issue you know in global politics well no because it's like ruining the world <laughs> i don't feel vindicated i feel pissed off it's like you know people only talk about these issues when things get really really scary and bad for immigrants and you know people's Free trade is, uh, is threatened. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it's not just crunchy people who want to help immigrants. It's like <laughs> the secretary, you know, like people who work for, for President Trump are quitting because they're like, they can't deal. Um, so do I feel vindicated? No, but do I really enjoy having these conversations all the time? Uh, <laughs> I, yes. Yes. I am always here to talk about these things. Do you recall first noticing the shift, the, the split that, that you describe in, the, in those sentences? Yeah. So when this these populist politicians um, started to gain power and traction, um, and particularly in the United States there and, and in the UK with Brexit, there, there, many words were uttered about the nasty globalists, the, the people who have no, if you're a citizen of everywhere, you're a citizen of nowhere, to quote Theresa May. Mm-hmm. Um, and there seemed immediately to be a, uh, how to put it? There always seemed to be a contradiction between people who, politicians who say they're populists, but actually, in any other way other than rhetorically, their policies help big business and they help the global ultra rich. Hmm. Um, and that, I think that's pretty consistent among a lot of these parties, right? That it's not really immigrant. It's not really, um, I guess you have to be the right kind of globalist or yeah, they're just, there's just a, a, a deep contradiction, um, within these populist movements and there is you know rhetorically they are for the people but all of their economic policies uh, benefit corporations and the rich and that's that's been you know that's been happening for some time but now it's so much more blatant yeah and for you personally how has that affected the types of stories you want to write or the things you want to say Hmm. that's a really i think about that all the time but i'm not sure i'm still figuring that out i'm still figuring out and how do your politics impact the stories you write and how do you juggle being an, an essayist and an argumentative writer with, with being a investigative reporter? Um, well, I'll give you an example. Um, mm-hmm. Right now I am uh, applying for a green card. Fingers crossed it'll happen. But Fingers I don't crossed. report on U.S. immigration um, for lots of reasons. I don't feel comfortable. I'm so not impartial. Like I can't even pretend to be impartial. And so I just don't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sucks because it's so exciting and there's so much, but I just don't think that that would be really professional. And I intend to write about it and maybe a, a first as a first person piece, but reporting on it, maybe it's, it's, it, that doesn't feel quite right to me. Um, I don't think 
my poli- like I don't I've never voted. I don't like politicians. I don't support any party. Like I think honestly my politics are so abstract that they can't like even if they're were they maybe they inform my interests, but I don't think that like there's no, no nothing partisan or like, you know, I'm not taking sides here. No one's on my side. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, has has globalism becoming a political issue affected who you view as, as a political ally, you know, among friends or the people you discuss these things with? No, but I do um, feel compelled to... So there there are people... Um, so a, a writer called Yasha Munk had a piece in the New York Times recently um, about how liberals should be more... Um, how liberals should be more nationalistic in the right ways and not in the wrong ways. And that just kind of upset me because the writer and I just want to be clear like there's a whole book he has a whole book op-eds have are you know limited just by words and there's probably a lot more complexity to it but I do feel like a little bit personally upset when people who are liberal or on the left kind of give up on internationalism because I haven't given up and I don't think I ever will (laughs) um so that that I I do want to I will debate Yasha someday I'm sure and those are conversations I have but um I also don't yeah not I'm 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 political but I'm not uh like I'm not you know pushing a line I don't think I've ever really pushed a party line um at some point either you think it's an inherently good thing or not and like Mm -hmm. that's kind of almost a first principle do you think that there should be you know that people should engage with people in other countries and that uh like to me the whole point of planes is that like people can see the world and like get to know each other and there can be conversations across, you know, large, large swaths of land. And so that I think internationalism is, is just fundamentally important in, in that respect and also in like more political and economic contexts. But uh, at some point, you can't really argue with someone who believes in, in autarky and, and nationalism and like the ethno state. Like that's their first principle. And, you know, maybe they're never going to be convinced. Yeah, I wanted to touch on something you you did mention there about writing in the first person. What that's something you've done uh, off and on, sometimes as a whole story, sometimes as part of your stories. What what do you feel like the value is there? What how do you decide when to use your personal background or your personal part of this to to, to point out something about the system? I don't like I don't like writing about myself, um, and the, when I do it, it's because I feel like it would be disingenuous not to. Mm. Um, I I'm not a big fan of like writing personal essays uh i think they're very good ones i just it's not really my thing maybe someday what is interesting to you now what with with infinite resources and time would you like to explore i think remittances are really interesting um i was having a conversation about uh redistribution of wealth and like what to do about global inequality and uh well you know the remit the system of remittances where people send money home that's actually a really big that that's big that's substantial people do that and uh mm-hmm. i don't know i'd love to explore that um something i've never i've never been to china and the one belt one road uh initiative is is super fascinating because it's going to it's not just going to be you know a highway it's going to be people moving to work in different places um bringing their cultures opening restaurants using new technology i think that's going to be a huge story I don't speak Chinese and I've never even, you know, like I said, I've never been to that part of the world, but that would be a dream to go and report stories about that. Um, I really want to go and 
report on the stateless people, the Rohingya um, in Myanmar. And now, I mean, a lot of them are in Bangladesh because they've been driven out and they're, mm-hmm. you know, refugees. Uh, but there's a lot of interesting stuff about identity and documentation that I'd like to cover there. Um, and, uh, well, I've never taken a road trip in the U.S., so <laughs> I was, but I also, I'm the worst driver, so I probably, <laughs> that's the only personal, like, that's the only kind of gratuitous personal essay I think I've written recently is I failed my road test three times, hmm. and so I wrote about, like, oh, fail, failure, yeah, it's, it's not that good, but I wrote about <laughs> how bad I am at driving. On the personal side, I, uh, I was told to ask you uh, to give me a pitch on surfing as a hobby. Oh, man. Um, I know who told you that. <laughs> um, this is a hobby. I don't do it enough. I wish I could do it all the time. Okay, I'll say this. I went surfing a couple of years ago. And when I caught my first wave, I completely understood why people <laughs> give up their jobs, their families, their uh-huh. livelihood, their lives just to do this all the time. Like, I got it. It was a split second. It was the best feeling in the world, better than literally anything. And how long did it take to, to get to that moment? Uh, I'm pretty athletic, so it was, it you know, easy? yeah, it was pretty easy. Yeah. 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 But it was a tiny wave, so. <laughs> and, and the other thing I want to ask, uh, as an international reporter, I'm curious if traveling for fun is something you're able to do or what, what the experience of traveling uh, outside of work is like. Um, good question. Um, I love any kind of traveling. Because my uh, my family, my mom is in Switzerland, um, a lot of my, you know, the regular travel I do is just to see her or uh-huh. to, you know, see family. So that's like, it's definitely fun, but it's not like going somewhere for fun. Um, last year, my boyfriend and I went to Thailand for fun. Uh, didn't write a word, didn't like do any reporting. <laughs> and it was, it was just opens your, it's just so inspiring, you know, seeing, just being in a different place uh, and doing, having different routines and smelling different things. It's just a whole sensory experience that you come back and you suddenly have all these ideas again and i love it well that's as good of a defense of internationalism as any to end on i think thank you ganatusa for the time yeah thank you and thanks to all of you for hanging out with us today this has been jacob feldman talk to you soon